0: This podcast is provided with the understanding that it does not constitute professional medical advice. The information presented on this podcast are my own personal views, opinions, and summaries of research. Always consult your physician regarding any medical concerns, conditions, or treatments. Hi there. Thanks for joining me for episode number four of It's Not You, It's Me at PMDD podcast. I'm sorry if it seems like it took me a while to put this episode together. I am a one-woman show with my full-time job. Um, Plus, I got a little caught up in a reading frenzy on top of everything else. And if you've seen, if you follow me on Twitter, you've seen I've uh, got the books about PMDD that I plan to start reading soon. Um, I'll be making my notes and eventually sharing a bit about them in future episodes. As I was reading the articles, um, that I printed this week and reviewing them, I was getting a little excited, like, oh, I can talk about that. No, wait, maybe this. But I figured, you know, I need to narrow it down. (laughs) So the best way I thought um, we could start would be to talk a little history about PMS and PMDD, start there, and then move on to discuss one of the articles that I read this week that I found really fascinating and It challenged my own views, not only just on how I think about PMDD, but also mental disorders in general. So I would love to share the information on that, what I thought about it, as well as get your thoughts and feedback on it too. If you follow me on Twitter, you might have seen the timeline I created and posted. If not, I'll share it again so you don't have to go searching through tweets. We begin in 1931 when gynecologist Dr. Robert Frank and psychoanalyst Karen Horney Note for the first time in scientific literature about the relationship between negative moods and menstruation, calling it premenstrual tension. About 20 years later, in 1953, a British physician by the name of Dr. Katharina Dalton introduces the term premenstrual syndrome, believing that the symptoms were far more extensive than just tension. And here are some quick, cool notes about her. According to Wikipedia, she began her studies on PMS in 1948 when she noticed that her monthly migraines had disappeared while she was pregnant. After consulting with Dr. Way- Raymond Green, an endocrinologist and who I assume was probably a colleague of hers, um, both thought that her migraines were attributed to a progesterone deficiency because those levels drop prior to menstruation but skyrocket during pregnancy. She did a range of studies on women and young girls, and I thought this was great, so I'd like to read it verbatim. From historic anecdotes, she even concluded that Queen Victoria suffered from PMS, as indicated by her reports of her monthly screaming and throwing objects at her husband, Prince Albert. Moving forward to 1987, a more severe state of PMS is recognized in the DSM-3 as an unspecified mood disorder, and this becomes known as late luteal phase dysphoric disorder. In 1994, the DSM-4 has renamed late luteal phase dysphoric disorder, try saying that three times fast, as what we now know as premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and it's still classified as a mood disorder at this point. Nine years later in 2013, PMDD is classified as a mental disorder in the DSM-5. Now it's no longer considered a mood disorder and the criterion for administering a diagnosis is also included in this version of the DSM. Come 2017, just two years ago, the World Health Organization includes PMDD in their international classification of diseases. So this is a brief review of how we got to where PMDD is today. I had tried tracking down Dr. Frank's case study series because I wanted to see what information was in there and how it was written, meaning in terms of views on women and their health. Because this was in the 1930s, the Great Market Crash had just happened, and the Great Depression began, women were expected to play the domestic role. And I'm just making up a story, but I would imagine his case studies going something like, you know, Patty presents with monthly headaches and fatigue that are not allowing her to have dinner ready for her husband upon returning home from work. I'm just really curious as to how the paper read, and hopefully one of these days I can track it down. Oh, and before I forget, back in the 18th century, there was the term menstrual moodiness. Now that term sounds a little condescending, don't you think? I think premenstrual tension was a step up for that. In this week alone, I've read through about five different journal articles. Some covered information that I had already read about before, but I still walked away with more knowledge and insight. One paper I had been itching to get to from the time I saw the title of it was this one from 2014 from the Journal of Bioethical Inquiry, written by Dr. Tamara Brown, who is a lecturer in bioethics. Now, honestly, the title itself pissed me off a little bit at first. Is PMDD really a disorder? Like, what the hell do you mean? Of course it's a freaking disorder. The dictionary defines disorder as lack of order or regular arrangement, a disruptive of systematic functioning. I've already shared how I, at least myself, turned into this pissy, super irritable, tired, hungry, achy person. That's not my regular behavior and it's definitely a disruption to my normal functioning. So yeah, by definition, I feel it's a damn disorder. I kept myself open in reading it and tried to remove myself from the information presented since I have PMDD, but I still thought it was a great and well-thought and argued perspective as to how PMDD can or should be viewed. The overall argument from Dr. Brown was that women should be able to receive support and treatment from their symptoms without them being diagnosed as having a mental disorder because PMDD is a socially constructed disorder. Yeah, I know. You're probably feeling the same way I did when I first read that. Now, before you say oh hell no and stop listening, Dr. Brown isn't being dismissive that women aren't actually experiencing the symptoms. What I got from it is that that she still wants women to get treated and acknowledges that distress can be significant and interfere with daily life, but it can be acknowledged without pathologizing it, meaning not treating the distress as abnormal or unhealthy. She argues that there needs to be a change in societal attitudes about PMDD and that PMDD should be removed from the DSM and that physicians should not label women that are experiencing these symptoms as mentally ill. Now, this little bit, I feel like I understand and get where she's coming from. When I first learned that PMDD was included in the DSM, I felt shocked. I went to a high school that prepped us for careers in medicine, and I've been working around healthcare providers for the last 10 years. So I'm aware that the DSM is like one of the go-to books for information um, for physicians and providing care. So knowing my diagnosis was in there was like this holy shit moment of I have a mental disorder because of that feeling that I personally had. I get why she argues that it should be removed from the DSM. In her arguments about PMDD being a socially constructed disorder, there's a lot of talk about culture, which makes up a lot of our society and what is and is not established as social norms. She says that PMDD is not a universal phenomenon, but a culture bound one. And there are studies from 2002 that say mood symptoms are suffered more by women in Western countries than in developing countries. They cite Chinese women as having reported more about the physical premenstrual symptoms they experience, but would rarely report any psychological symptoms. In relation to this belief and example, there's a call to accept that exposure to the United States culture should also be considered a risk factor in the development of PMDD symptoms because other studies found with women of ethnic minorities who spend more time in the U.S. become more likely to report PMDD. So they're assimilating to the culture and therefore also, I guess, assimilating to symptoms that are common within the culture. New to me was this idea of a pressure cooker theory. Instead of focusing on the why and when a woman explodes like a pressure cooker can once a month, This focuses on why those feelings of distress are repressed for those other three weeks within the month, and I actually kind of never thought about that. This, again, is where culture comes into play. Typically, or perhaps until recent shifts in society, the belief was that women were not expected to express their anger and frustrations except for, you know, quote-unquote, that time of the month, when it was socially excusable, allowed, expected. That time of the month is is a culturally sanctioned time. And a great example that was given in the article was a comparison at trick-or-treating at Halloween. If you go knocking on a stranger's door in the middle of April asking for candy, chances are you'll get a weird look, the door slammed in your face, maybe the cops called on you. But you do the same thing on October 31st, and it's perfectly okay. It's expected, acceptable, allowed, and people are kind of like welcoming you into their home for candy. I know menstruation and candy are two different things, but the point is they both have this socially sanctioned time when it's okay and no one really thinks twice about it. One thing that continues to happen in society is using the belief that because women's behaviors and thoughts can be subject to control by their out-of-control hormones, that we, they are unfit to be in positions of responsibility. And while instances like this, unfortunately, still happen, you know, recently... It's not a new thing. In 1968, Dr. Edgar Berman, a prominent American surgeon, argued the same belief against female physicians and other leadership positions. In the 1970s, an Australian airline used the same belief to argue that women were unfit to be commercial airline pilots. And it wasn't until January of 1980 that Deborah Laurie made her first commercial flight for the airline after winning her case against the company. So I had a lot of mixed emotions after reading this article while I can appreciate her reasons for feeling it's unethical to describe premenstrual anger and distress as a mental disorder. I'm not sure if I 100% agree with it, you know, maybe making PMDD a pathological issue is the only way for it to be taken seriously and for women to get the help they need. So I do agree with the idea that society should change their views, perhaps not only toward PMDD, but mental disorders in general. But what would really changing that do? If PMDD was removed from the DSM, would it affect the types of support that women would have access to for symptoms? Would physicians take the symptoms less serious? Would women still be able to get the counseling and or medical treatments they need to help manage symptoms? I have questions. (laughs) Uh, This article did give me a lot to think about, and considering it was published five years ago, I'm curious as to whether the author still feels the same way about it this situation. And I would also love to know what you think or feel about the information from that article. How did you feel about the information? Does it change how you feel about PMDD or how others feel toward women with PMDD? You can message me on Twitter at PMDD podcast. And if you're using the anchor podcast app, you can send me a voice ma- message as well. For now, that's all I've got, and I'm glad you joined me for another episode, and if you're able to take at least one new piece of knowledge away from these podcasts, that makes me happy. I hope you have a wonderful day wherever you are, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks.